So we're going to jump right in this morning. You didn't come here to hear me. You came here to encounter the risen Christ. So we're going to jump into his word. I'm going to introduce you to a new friend of mine this morning. At least he's a newer friend to me. His name's Haggai. Anybody ever study the book of Haggai? It is a book of the Bible. If you need to look in the index in your Bible to find it, totally understandable. It's not an easy one to find. We as a church are studying the book of Haggai. We did chapter, we did the first chapter last week and then we started chapter two today. So I'm now going to bring you chapter one and two together this morning. And I, I, I can say I am perhaps, if I can't, I don't have the time to share with you all of the pieces of the puzzle that went into why our church ended up in Haggai and why Albert let me know yesterday he needed a preacher and I'm in Haggai. If I could tell you all the pieces that went into that, that brought me here this morning, it would build your faith. And I think, I hope that when you hear what Haggai has to say, you will feel as if it was perfectly designed for you. I I believe that with all my heart. So Haggai. Haggai was written as a post-exilic book, which I know for some of you that means nothing, so I'm going to give you a quick little summary, because if you don't know the context, you won't know what's going on. For 400 years, God sent prophets to his people, calling them to return to him with all their heart. And when God's people received the word of those prophets, they either ignored it or they killed the prophet. So God warned them, if they kept doing that, that he would punish them through Babylon. In 586 AD, that is what he did. God destroyed, through the Babylonians, the land of Jerusalem and the temple, and brought the people into exile. After 70 years in exile, the Persians conquered Babylon, and under King Cyrus, he issued a decree that all the people could return to their homelands, where he asked them, and he funded it, so they could build temples to pray to their gods and specifically to pray for him and his, and his sons. And so here in Haggai, 50,000 of God's people have returned from their 70 years of exile and they returned to an absolute mess. Imagine if you would, 9-11, rubble, trash, things overgrown after 70 years of not being tilled. Things were in bad shape, but Cyrus had given them money and so they began to work on the temple. After one year of working, the people quit. They stopped working on God's house. So God sent Haggai to encourage them to finish the temple. So Haggai is going to deliver four sermons to them over the course of three months. Haggai, unlike the other prophets, writes in prose, not in poetry, which basically means this is for us to think. God wants us to think, not necessarily to feel like he does when he sends poetry. I was born and bred in New Jersey, northern New Jersey. If God were going to send a prophet to New Jersey, he would have spent sent Haggai. Blunt, to the point, cut to the chase, no fluff, no flowery language. So I like Haggai. He and I would be pals, I think. And so what he does is he comes right in through God's word. And in four sermons, he addresses the fact that the people are disobedient. They are discouraged. They are self-righteous. And then in the fourth one, God's plan to rescue them from their discouragement, their disobedience, and their self-righteousness. So this first sermon, and I'm going to, I think, 
uh, how much time do I have? Like 10 more minutes? I'm going to very quickly just probably not even look at my notes, so I hope this is clear, give you the first sermon, because I believe the second sermon is the one, not my second, his second sermon. I, I can't help but believe it's handcrafted for you guys this morning. So here we go. The first sermon that God brought through Haggai to them was simply this. Look at verse 2. I'm not going to read the whole first chapter here, but look at verse 2. It says this. This is God. He comes right to his people, straight out of the gate. Haggai's saying these words. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it time, or is it a time, for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So remember, they got the foundation down, then 18 years went by, and they didn't do jack. In verse 6, it says the people were very busy building their own homes, but they gave nothing, no time, no resources to rebuilding God's house. So to put it blunt, God says to them, so I guess you don't have time to build my house, but it sure seems like you have time to build your own house. And evidently, there have been some pretty slick houses as a result. This is meant to ouch. This is meant to hurt them, to, to cut to the quick in their hearts as they realize we sure had the resources and time to do what we wanted for us. But we gave up doing what God told us to do for him. And the real issue here, just so you guys know, is not that God is homeless. God doesn't need the temple. The issue here is, what was the point of the temple? What happened in the temple? Worship. The temple is where God came to dwell among his people. So in essence, what the people are saying by putting off the temple but building their homes is, God, we don't care about your presence. We are more consumed with our own comfort in our own homes and our own lives than we are with your presence. And so they put God's assignment to them to rebuild his house on hold. According to verse 6, God had been trying to get their attention long before sending Haggai. Look at verse 6. He says, you've sown. You've sown much. Harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in bags with holes. Basically, the people gathered food, made clothes, worked to make money, yet they never seemed to have enough. They were frustrated and discontent. And God goes on to tell them why exactly this recession and this drought is happening in verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, why the recession? Why are you not content? Why are you gathering money? And you guys have experienced this, and it feels like it just goes in one, one bank account and out the other, right? Come and gone. Why the recession? Why are they going through this? Well, he's going to tell them, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you will withhold the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all of their labors. God is behind this recession and this drought. And I draw two things from what God is addressing the people here, how he's addressing them. The first one is this. God is not pleased with his people when their priorities on earth are flipped upside down. 
Do you get that? I pray you guys are grounded in grace, so I don't have a chance to say all the other things that I would say pastorally right now. But you need to understand that God is not pleased, and I'm going to show you in a minute why I'm using the word pleased. God is not pleased with his people when their priorities on earth are flipped upside down. And the second thing I get from this is that God will bring discipline when his people continue to live that way. If you continue to live with your priorities out of line with God's, he will bring loving discipline into your life. Listen, this discipline that took place here was not Mother Nature or the fact they live in a fallen world, but God bringing drought, God bringing hardship, God bringing discipline to get their attention. He was using the things of everyday life to shake the people, to cause them to wake up and to see that they were missing out on having God. They didn't have God, and they didn't care, because they had other stuff. So God sends trouble their way. Listen, let me just ask you this morning, what does your pursuit of God's presence look like compared to your pursuit of earthly things? When you think of all the things that you crave and desire, whether it's houses or clothes or entertainment, better body, vacation, boyfriend, girlfriend, money, how does it compare with your desire to have God? If God came to you this morning, how would he finish the sentence? You say you don't have time to pursue my presence, but it sure seems that you have time to... That's what's going on here. This is confrontation 101. This is God getting in their grill. He's after them in a good way, but he's after them. And you could sum up really the whole book of Haggai with what God says to them here in verse 7. He actually says it in verse end of verse 5 and in verse 7. His simple command to them is this. End of verse 5. Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And he tells them exactly what they should be doing. Go up to the hills, bring the wood, build the house, that I may take pleasure in it. Remember I used the word pleasure before? That I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord of hosts. This is God's mandate on them, his command to them. Consider your ways. Consider how you're living. Consider the discrepancy between what you say with your lips and how you're living your life. And he tells them, point blank, this is what you should do, verse 8. Go up to the hills, bring the wood, build the house. I love it. Go, bring, build. No beating around the bush. Go do it. Consider your ways and go do it. Motivations, there's two. So that God will be pleased and glorified. Trust me, any other motivation sucks. And will burn you out in whatever you're doing for God. It must be for his pleasure and for his glory. Not for your pleasure. And not for your glory. For his. And so there's a twofold motivation here. May that be yours and mine. For whatever it is we do. Whether we eat or whether we drink. May we do it for his glory. So how do the people respond in verse 12? If you look at verse 12 with me, here's what it says. That Zerubbabel, Joshua, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord. And the angels went nuts. 470 years of killing prophets, ignoring them. 
They obeyed. Amazing. They actually obeyed. It says they obeyed the words of Haggai the prophet and the Lord that the Lord God had sent them and they feared the Lord. They heard the word of the Lord. They received the word of the Lord and they obeyed the word of the Lord. And the second part of verse 14 says, And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius. Now, we didn't read verse 1. Verse 1 gives you a date when Haggai started to speak. And now verse 14 gives us another date. 23 days have passed from Haggai preaching to the people building. And I have a feeling that during those 23 days, they heard his message before they began to work. I think they spent 23 days considering their ways. I don't think they spent those days gathering material, coming up with a game plan, because I think if they had, they would have given up because their game plan stunk, which is why they gave up in the first place and they didn't have the resources to do it. But I think they spent their time considering their ways for 23 days. If you want something to do for the next 23 days, I brought something for everyone. If you want it, 23 days to consider your ways. Each day starts with, ask the Spirit to help you consider. And every one of the things that are in here for the 23 days either has to do with the book of Haggai, or as a church we had just finished Amos, and I believe Joel is in here. But 22 of the, 21 of the 23 days are all from Haggai. So you want to study Haggai, and you want to consider your ways for 23 days? There you go. Kind of corny. But it rhymes. Now I want you to just look at this. I want you to see how God responds. If you look at verse 13, we're going to see how God responds. Verse 13, it says, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. And here's what God says to them, right? They, they get busy working. They consider their ways. They repent. They get back to work. Verse 13, the message that came to them after they repented was, I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Listen, when you live for God, you get God. This is crucial, church 2018, because in most churches, what we hear today is, do what God says and life will go easy. Have you ever read your Bible? Everybody that tries to do what God says, life sucks after that. It rots. It's hard. But you get God. And that's the point of Haggai. You're gonna get God. And that should, that should mean everything to us. It means take my life, take my family, take my job, take my clothes, take my car, take my fishing gear, take my hunting gear, take it all. I get God. If tomorrow I'm in the hospital, I still have God. When I lie on my deathbed, Will any of those things matter? No. But I can say, I've got God. So they considered their ways. They turned to God. They got back to building. And God says, I am with you. Listen, church, do you believe that there is something better to get than God? Is there something you're thinking right now? I wish I could have that more than I can have God. Of course there is. <laughs> That's why we gather together like this. So we can consider our ways. All the things I wish I could have that in my mind would be greater than if I could have more God. So God says, consider that. Think about it. And turn to me. 
So that's what they did. They got busy building. And then chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, is the second sermon that God gives to Haggai. It's only less than a month later. So they're busy for 27, I think it is, days. Busy working. Going after building the temple. And then it says they got discouraged. They got discouraged by the work of their hands. Anybody here in any way discouraged over the work of your hands? It's interesting. Let me, let me read it. Let me read chapter 2. Let me read these verses. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw the house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord God. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, so that the treasures of the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give you peace. Follow the story here. 23, 4, 5 days of them working hard in the temple. And if there's a banner to put over this second sermon, it would be discouragement. The people are very discouraged. And it seems that their discouragement is based on the fact that there's people with them. You can read this in Ezra. I encourage you to read Ezra. It's the historical book that Haggai fits under. The, the, the thing that's going on here is there's older people who remember the glory days when the temple was grand and big and they're looking at this puny little foundation and they're going, this is a joke. And their response in, in, in Ezra is that it says the younger people were celebrating. We did it. We built the foundation. The older people were weeping and wailing. It said it could be heard for miles, the weeping and wailing of the people. As they looked at this pathetic temple and remembered what it used to be in the good old days. And they're broken over it. It's tearing them apart. And evidently, the discouragement that they brought affected the younger people. So everyone was discouraged and ready to give up building. So the people are really devastated at this pathetic new beginning. application for anyone. Look, I love this church. I know what's going on. This is no secret. I don't know all the details. I'm glad I don't. But is this not relevant? Anybody here feel discouraged over looking at how the past was and where you're sitting today? Listen, I didn't plan this. Promise me. I didn't want to preach an Old Testament prophet. God boxed me in. 
And I had no idea I was coming this morning. I had no idea that I would preach this message in my church this morning and then bring it here. No clue. So receive this as God. Okay? They are discouraged. And their discouragement comes from comparison. Comparing the way things used to be to the way things are now. Maybe you've lived there. Maybe you're discouraged when you look at your past life based on how you're living now. Maybe you get discouraged when you think about other people's accomplishments compared to your accomplishments. Look, comparison will always lead to pride or discouragement. One or the other. So maybe you get discouraged this morning when you think about the good old days or maybe you think about your last church. Discouragement comes in many shapes and sizes and you need to know this. God is aware of your discouragement. And he's not. He's not wagging his finger at you saying, shame on you. Christ took your shame. He's aware of it and he knows it. And so the next thing that he gives to Haggai are six things to encourage the people. Six ways to overcome discouragement. Does anybody want to hear six ways to overcome discouragement? I do. (laughs) I do. Because I get discouraged too. So aware of their discouragement, God gives them these six things, and I'm going to give them to you. Muy rapida. Here we go. Number one. First is this. God tells them to be strong, be strong, be strong. Look at verse four. Verse 4, he says, Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel. Be strong, O Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land. Three times God says it. Be strong, be strong, be strong. And I want you to notice it's not just the priest who needs to be strong. It's not just the governor that needs to be strong. It's not just the leaders that need to be strong. It's all the people of the land who need to be strong. Do you see what God's doing? He's trying to build a community of people who together are strong. See, God is determined to help his people fight discouragement in mission by building them together in a strong community. Community, unity, and strength is one of the first things God addresses when people are discouraged. Then look at what he says next. Look at verse 4. He says, be strong. All you peoples of the land declares the Lord. Somebody shout out. What's the next word? Work. Work, he says. Look, they are seriously discouraged. Resources have depleted. And he tells them to work. He's reminding them of what he had told them when he told them to bring and build and go. Gather what you need and rebuild this thing. But here, he just says work. He doesn't say sit down. He doesn't say get refreshed, take a break, reevaluate. He's already said consider your ways and they did that. So now he's going right after and saying, look, just work. He's reminding them again of what he's called them to do. Now listen, there is no question whether there is a place for you to rest. And I pray that all of you have a system in your life set up so that one day a week you're getting some kind of rest to celebrate the grace of God and to enjoy his presence. But here, God directs them to get back to work. He doesn't Tell them to reflect longer or reevaluate. It's time to get busy. Perhaps the same is true for some of us this morning. Maybe you've been taught scripture. You know what to do. 
You've had time to consider your ways. Maybe now it's time to get to work. I believe this all my heart. If you've been a Christian more than a couple of years, you don't need another Bible study. You need to get to work. You don't need another sermon. You need to get to work. James warns us, right? Over and over. Don't be deceived thinking because you've learned something that now you're being obedient. Get to work. God is determined to help his people fight discouragement in mission by building them together as a strong community to work, to work for his glory. And I'm using the word glory because I'm going back to chapter 1, verse 8. We do it for his glory. And then what God says next to them really is another mind-blowing moment for us. Work, he says, look at verse 4. Work for I am with you. Work for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. The third thing God says to his people to encourage them is, I am with you. A little Bible study time for a moment here. The word for connects the word work to what God says here about being with them. Do you see that? Work. For I am with you. Work. Because my spirit is in your midst. The reason you can work is because God is with you. Why should you work? God is with you. What makes it possible for you to work? God is with you. Listen, we need God to be with us. (laughs) You want to be discouraged? Try to do it without God. Or without his presence. Without seeking his presence. And you will end up discouraged. And then he ties it to the Old Testament promise that he made to them. You can read that in Exodus, where he says, I'm going to give you my presence. My presence is going to be with you. He talked about the tent and how God's presence would be in the tent for them. But you and I know that in the new covenant, this promise gets kicked into overdrive. Does it not? When the Spirit of God comes now and doesn't dwell in a tent or in a temple, but in people, you, my friends, are little temples. I tried to figure out a way this morning to make myself a little wooden temple box to wear (laughs) so I could wear it the rest of the sermon. You are. You're a little temple. God is dwelling this morning in you. That That should captivate you. God. So many other things captivate me when I wake up in the morning. Stupid things captivate me in the morning. The first thing I should think of, which should rock my world when I wake up in the morning, is God is here and God is dwelling in me. His presence is in this room. I've been justified. We're connected to God now through Christ. And his presence is with us. I don't know if you, how your church vision actually goes. Ours is very anchored in, in this whole idea that God makes, God calls you to be a disciple so you can make disciples. And I can't help but think that this is so tied into Matthew 28, where God gives his people a clear command as what to do. Just like he did in Haggai's day. Go, get the wood, build. In Jesus' day, Jesus gets ready to leave, and he says, I want you to go make disciples. And then he ends by saying, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. It's the same thing. We're just not building temples. We're building his church with an organic body as all these little temples try to come together and learn how to live on mission for God's glory. See, God is determined to help his people fight discouragement in mission by building them together as a strong, spirit-filled community to work for his glory. That is his plan. A spirit-filled community to work for his glory. And he goes on to say a fourth thing. Here, be encouraged, church. Fear not, he says next. End of verse 5. My spirit is in your midst. Fear 
not. You know, every time God shows up on the scene or an angel shows up on the scene, what does he always say to the people? Fear not. So I think they're, they're scared to death. Great. God's coming. This is not good. And so he tells them to fear not. Fear not. Do any of you fear failure? I think they feared failing building the temple. They were afraid to keep working. They said, if I keep working on this temple and it fails, I've wasted my time. What a waste. And there was a fear there. Maybe it was a fear of embarrassment. Others would think if they saw this pathetic temple that they had just built. There was probably a fear of man because they were facing opposition from, from other people who didn't want them to build the temple. There was fear there. And so God tells him not to fear. But listen, you and I know there's plenty of reasons to fear. Listen, God's mission is a big mission. And the mission of God is big so that we will see our need for the big God of the mission. Do you get that? It is big. Trying to bring 100 plus little temples together to build one big temple? Almost impossible. Unless God is with you. Then it can happen. So don't fear, he says. And then look at verse 5, if you would. He says, fear not. And here we see this word again, for. Fear not, for. He's going to tell you why you shouldn't fear. And I think this shows us another thing they were afraid of. So let's look at what that is. He says, fear not, for. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this is verse 6. Yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Fear not, for God owns everything. I think the fear for them specifically was related to the fact that they did not have the resources they needed to finish the job. They looked around and they said, we can't do it. And so God is reminding them that he has all of the resources that they need in order to finish the project God has called them to finish. So I think the fifth thing we can say after he says, fear not, battling discouragement is this. God has authority over all the resources in heaven and earth. God has all the resources that any church ever needs to pull off the mission God has called them to pull off. And I think they were afraid that they wouldn't have it. So God tells them, I'm going to shake the heavens. I can shake the earth. I can shake the sea and the dry land and all the nations. So all these treasures come in. In other words, God's saying, I'm in charge of everything, of heaven and on earth. So in me, you can have everything you need to finish what I've called you to do. Does this not remind you of God's commission to the church? What does he say? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. There are so many parallels in Haggai. The building of the temple to the building of the church. And I don't mean a building. This is not a raise money passage. And may it never be used that way. This is a build the kingdom passage. This is God has everything you need to build his church. It's all found in him. Listen, have you ever thought about taking the next step maybe in disciple making or in doing something God has called you to do and you thought to yourself, I don't have what it takes to pull this off. Have you ever thought that? I don't have what it takes to pull it off. Listen to me. 
you don't have what it takes to pull it off. (laughs) If you did, who would get the glory? But who does have all the resources to pull it off? Who has authority in heaven and earth to pull it off? Jesus Christ does. And when he gives you what you need to pull off the disciple-making mission he's called us to, he will get the praise and he will get the glory. I don't know if you notice how God-centered, I I read it quickly, how God-centered verses 4 through 8 are. How God-centered all of this is and all of Scripture is, but specifically verses 4 to 7. Listen to the eyes and the my and the me's. Listen to this. Verses 4 to 8. Here's what it says. Be strong for I am with you. My co- the covenant that I made with you, my spirit remains with you. I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will shake all the nations. I will fill this house with glory. The silver is mine. The gold is mine. You understand that when God's people are discouraged, he never points you to you. <laughs> Why? Because if he did, you'd be more discouraged. <laughs> Nothing about you will ever help you battle discouragement. It will only bring more discouragement. And God doesn't point his people to other people. Did you notice that? He doesn't point them to the leaders. He doesn't point them to Zerubbabel. After all, he's practically their king. Or to a priest, Joshua. Or to the prophet, Haggai. He doesn't. Because if he points people to other people, there will just be more discouragement. So in their discouragement, God points the people to God. Haggai is here to tell you this morning to fight discouragement by going to God, by counting on God, by knowing that God has everything you need, that he has the resources you need. I'm here to tell you this morning, to remind you this morning to fight discouragement, knowing that everything this church needs to move forward is found in God. So seek him. Seek your Jesus. Treasure him. Love him. Cling to him. Depend on him. Look to him. What this church and every church on the planet needs more than anything else is more of Jesus. That's what we need. And God is determined to help his people fight discouragement in the mission by building them together as a strong, spirit-filled community with all the resources they need to work for his glory. Do you believe that this morning? That God has everything you need so that you can build a spirit-filled community for his glory on his mission. Gives him one more thing to battle discouragement. Last one, number six. He simply says this to them. A greater glory is yet to come. Look at verse nine. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. What God says to them is to keep working because you have no idea what's yet to come. Keep working because you have no idea what is yet to come. Now, The temple would be rebuilt, mostly under Nero, and it would take years. But it would be rebuilt. So I think in part, this word, the glory of the temple, was fulfilled in the rebuilding of an actual physical temple. God 
wants to use that hope to keep them building. He says, you don't know what's yet to come. Don't be discouraged. Fight discouragement and fear. Set your hope in this future glory that's going to far exceed anything you've ever seen in a physical temple. But that was only in part. Because some 400 years later, another prophet would stand in the temple and in Matthew 12, verse 6, he would say, something greater than the temple is here. Who was that? Jesus. Something greater than the temple is here. John would say of Jesus in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Jack, what are you saying? And you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Greater glory. Greater glory. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he, what he had said, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken they connected the dot. There would be a greater temple, a greater glory in a greater temple that would be more glorious than this physical temple. In fact, it would be infinitely greater because it would be anchored in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think about what took place in the temple. God's presence would dwell. You'd sacrifice animals. Why? So your sins could just be covered up. And then you'd come back the next day or the next week or the next month and kill another animal so your sins could be covered up for a little more. Jesus comes as a greater temple. And he says, now in me, you can get to God. Now in me, you can come to God because I'm not just going to cover your sins through my bloodshed. You can have your sins completely washed away and forgiven. A greater glory in a greater temple. You can now draw close to God, not just when you happen to walk into a building. You can draw close to God now anytime, anywhere, through the spirit that comes through the resurrected Jesus Christ. And that's what he's saying. It's greater. So in their discouragement, he points them forward to a greater temple. In your discouragement, you should look back to a greater temple. The Jesus temple. Because that's the only way you're going to fight discouragement. You realize, oh, there's a greater glory for me to look at. But we not only look back at that glory... We actually also get to look forward to a future glory. John says it in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. So he sees this new heaven with a new earth. And he sees this Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem coming down, a holy city. It lands on earth and God tells them the dwelling place of God is now completely 100% with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Is that not, if you're a born-again believer, if the Spirit of God is in you, that has got to stir something in you when you think, I'm going to stand for eternity in the presence of my God. He's going to be my God. Now, side note, can't resist. 
read uh, chapter 4 or 5 of Revelation where it says God is going to pull you aside. He's going to hand you a little stone. He's going to give you a new name. Only you and him are going to know about it. He's going to be your God. And you're not going to have any crap sin in your life anymore interrupting it and screwing it up. It's going to be just you and him. It's going to be a great glory. And then look what he goes on to say. So we've got this new Jerusalem coming down. Then, in verse 22 of chapter 21, verse 22, he says, And I saw no temple. Rutro. <laughs> There's no temple. For the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, listen to the parallels between this and Haggai. And it's late. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory of the honor of of the nations. This is the ultimate fulfillment of what God told the people through Haggai. But nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Do you see what's happening in this future glory? Do you see it? It's a future glory, a future temple, but it's not going to be a building. It's going to be the very presence of God and Jesus the Lamb who was slain for your sins. And it's going to be bright and glorious with no sun and no moon because Jesus is going to shine and we're going to see him for who he really is and how he really is. And you will be transformed from the inside out, made completely brand new as you enjoy his glory and his presence forever and ever and ever. Amen. And God is saying, let that help you in your discouragement. Look to the future Glory, be strong, be strong, be strong. Fear not, God is with you. He has all the resources you ever need to build his house. Now, look to the future glory that is awaiting for you in heaven so you can put your hands to the task God has called you to do. That, my friends, is at least the first two sermons of Haggai. God is determined, listen, he is determined to help his people, to help you fight discouragement in the mission by building you together as a strong, spirit-filled community with all the resources you need to work for his glory as you hope in the day of greater glory. Where is your hope this morning? Where is it set? If it's set only on tomorrow or the next day, you will be discouraged. It must be set on the day when there will be a glory that will captivate you, mesmerize you, satisfy you like nothing you've ever experienced on earth. Church, Set your hope in that glory. Fight discouragement through the message of Haggai. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, I...
and grateful for the fact that you are an active and living God and for the way that you orchestrated things in my life months ago all the way up through so my church, your church that I get to be a part of, benefits. And I, I pray, Lord, it helps this church. I pray for fruitful application of the book of Haggai, Lord. I pray for my friends in this room and that you would help them to fight their discouragement, to find hope in you. I pray, Spirit, you would reveal more of Christ and his glory to these people. Lord, we need to behold the glory of Jesus Christ so that we can be transformed into his image and then live for him the way that we have been called. And so, Spirit, do that work. We're grateful that you are not a passive God. Invade us, invade this place, invade these people so that this body of believers can be a temple that goes out and rocks Frederick for your glory, where many lost people will turn to you and hurting people will be healed and discouraged people will find encouragement and hopeless people will find hope. Lord Jesus, I I pray your blessing and I pray your help for each person here as they try to process exactly how you want them to respond to Haggai. In Jesus' name, amen.